Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, so this morning we begin a new series that's going to take us through the rest of the fall. Uh, we're going, and then again uh, through the spring, really through the entire school year, just about in First and Second Samuel, uh, which are some of the neatest stories in the scriptures about King David and all that God did through him and in his kingdom. And so this morning we're going to start that off by reading the very first chapters of First Samuel. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you'll you'll see uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1, and then we're going to read through verse 10, and then we're going to skip to chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 as well from First Samuel. So it is printed for you there in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along. Uh, if you're at home and you're watching, it should be on your screen as well. Uh, let's just get our eyes on the text as we read together the story of Hannah. Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. That's the hard part, it gets easier from here. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all his, her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because... The Lord had closed her womb, and so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, okay? Now skip ahead to chapter two, and I want you to notice how differently Hannah's countenance is, and then we're gonna ask the question of what happened in between. Beginning in chapter two, verse one, and Hannah prayed to the Lord, and here's what she prayed. My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's None holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble by non-strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry or were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we come into this text this morning. Where do you feel particularly defeated? Where, where, do you, just where do you feel maybe overwhelmed or just you're up against something that you know you don't have the strength to overcome it? Where do you feel particularly defeated? And I have a second question. How do you feel about that? Can you, uh, can you name the emotion that, that causes you to feel in whatever the biggest struggle area of your life is right now? Now, I ask the question because of this. Tim Keller said this. He said, in general, God begins a new chapter of his power in your life at the point of your greatest hopelessness and helplessness. The chapters of our life are often defined by the moments where we feel the most hopeless and the most helpless. And I'm betting, however you answered the question that I asked there about feeling defeated, that in all likelihood it is a place of deep discouragement and embarrassment and maybe avoidance for you. If you're anything like me, that's probably true. But if what Tim Keller said is right, then it should actually be a place of great curiosity an expectation and wonder and, and even hope. And that's, that's what I'm going to argue for. I think that's what the text here argue for, argues for. And it can be of tremendous help to us. I, I heard Ray Ortland one time reflect on the sage advice of a saintly older man in the church that he grew up in who in hard times when nothing seemed to be working, when everything seemed to be going the wrong way and everyone was growing fearful and upset, this man would stand up in the midst of the church, so to speak, and would say something like, isn't this so great that we're having such a hard time? Isn't it so great that we're struggling like this? Isn't it so wonderful that we are failing so miserably? Because now we have the privilege of seeing what only God can do. Yeah, you know, he was probably annoying. But it's good, I think it's a good piece of truth. I think it's right. First Samuel is the story of the great king, David, who is but a forerunner of the greater king, the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it starts, it's interesting, that whole sweep of story, that new chapter of God's power being revealed to his people in salvation starts in a place of great hopelessness and helplessness in tremendous defeat with a woman named Hannah. And the very first thing we're told about her, the most important thing for us to be told about her is that she had no children. She was barren. And it's an image that's very important in, in the Bible. I know it can be sensitive, but it is an image that's very important. We need to talk about it because barrenness is an image throughout the scriptures that really describes, on the one hand, powerlessness and the powerlessness of God's people but it is actually also an image that if you allow it to round out your thinking and your, and your, and your, your vision, it is an image that also describes the possibility that it exists when you're in a place where you have the privilege of seeing what only God can do. But only if you understand. It's possibility and not powerlessness, only if you understand the grace of the kingdom, okay? And so that's the three points of the outline I've given you. I want to talk about powerlessness, and I want to talk about possibility, and then I want to hone us in on the promise of God as it's revealed in Hannah's song here. Okay, so let's walk through the text just in those headings. So first, we meet with this barren woman 
named Hannah, and her barrenness is an image of powerlessness, of weakness. And too often, when we feel defeated, or when we feel weak, when we feel not up to the task that's in front of us, we respond with deep emotions, the, the, the most common one being with something like shame or with embarrassment. The text says, verse 8, if you look there, that Hannah's heart was sad, so much so that she wouldn't eat. She really wasn't functioning. She was depressed. But there is one word in particular that describes her condition. In verse 6, if you look there, it says that she was irritated. The other wife, that's what we'll call her for a minute, the other wife would provoke her to irritate her, it says. And this went on year after year after year. And she was irritated. And that word is used only here in all of the Old Testament scriptures to describe a person's inner life. Everywhere else that it's used, it's very specific. It's referring to a raging storm to the rumble of thunder through the canyon as it echoes and bounces off the canyon walls. Hannah could not have children and it caused her to rumble on the inside with grief and embarrassment and shame. Because in Hannah's world, women were not judged by their accomplishments or by their measurements. They were judged almost exclusively by the number of children they bore to their husbands. Big families were very important. Lots of children meant wealth and social status for the family. You, you'd have plenty of help in, with, in the fields with your crops. You could defend yourself with numbers if the enemy attacked. And so women who had lots of children were treated as heroes. They were celebrated, and those who could not were marginalized and maligned. And Hannah, Hannah had no children, and having children... And having lots of children was everything to a woman in her day. She had no children, and so she was nothing, and she was ashamed. And she began to rumble. Now, the author of the material meant for Hannah to be illustrative of the nation of Israel at this time. The people had been spiritually and culturally devolving since the time of Moses and Joshua, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament uh, time of events. Remember where First and Second Samuel is situated historically, even in, in the scriptures. Uh, it is just after the events recorded in the book of Judges. Now you have a little interlude with Ruth, but, but really Ruth happens at the same time as Judges. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, here is the outline of the book of Judges. It was bad. And then it got worse, and then it got worser, okay, until they were on the brink of civil war and absolute chaos. And along comes this material where we're turning, the, turning you know, the corner towards the coming of the great king who would make things good again. But first, we, ha we have this person, Hannah, and Hannah's barren womb was a metaphor for there and our spiritual nothingness before God. Hannah is us. In Genesis, there was a time when humanity was completely naked and unashamed, completely exposed to God and all of our frailty and nothingness into one another, and yet they did not experience any sense of embarrassment. It says in, in that... Um, there in Genesis that they, they didn't even know they were naked. They were so lacking in self-consciousness. They were so unthinking about themselves. They had no sense there was anything wrong with them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living that way? I'm getting older, and uh, I have an impingement in my shoulder. 
I can, I'm so happy to report I did push-ups for the first time in about 10 months this week, so I'm on the mend, but I have this thing, and it, it hurts all the time, and I think about it all the time, because when you move, you know, it, it constantly, see, if my shoulder were working properly, it wouldn't be drawing attention to itself, it's such a selfish shoulder to be doing that, always screaming at me, help, I'm hurt, don't do that, it whines and whines and whines all the time. Because it's not working the way it's supposed to. And at the beginning, the man and the woman were so right that they did not even, there was no awareness of their nakedness and they didn't call attention to themselves. They didn't even think about it because they were working the way they were supposed to. And then, and then they sinned against the Lord. And as a consequence, what the theologians call that original righteousness that they had, it was taken away from them and it says their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They lost that rightness and it was replaced with a deep sense of wrongness, so much so that immediately there, they began to posture and hide. And we, all of us, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, are born into the world with the feeling that there is something terribly wrong with us painfully aware of our limitations and lack and terrified of our vulnerability and so obsessively self-conscious and compulsively embarrassed by our failures and our weakness especially in comparison to others this is the misery of sin in his wonderful little book on prayer old Halsby says your helplessness is your best prayer, and you should become resigned to it until it's not a cause of pain or anxiety for you anymore. It just becomes a part of who you are. It's just like an accessory. But without the righteousness that we once had, we instead, we avoid being exposed. We try to cover our nakedness with some kind of works, with a virtue or an accomplishment or a reputation that we hope will make us feel less embarrassed about our sins and our failures. We seek a righteousness of our own to make up for the righteousness that we've lost so that we can feel okay and pretend we're not as limited or lacking as our lives suggest to prove ourselves, to earn our way. Hannah had her husband's love, but no child. And for her, righteousness, that sense of being right, the thing that would make her okay was the child she could not have, which Penina had, Penina, Penina had. Penina had children, but not her husband's affection. And for her, that righteousness, that sense of rightness, what would make her feel okay was his love, which Hannah had. They were rivals, the text says, because pride is by definition competitive and striving for righteousness like this is such a problem because it is a zero-sum game. But look what it did to both of them. Hannah, as a result of this comparison that was going on between these two women, lived with an overwhelming, soul-crushing sense of wrongness when she compared herself to her rival, and it left her insides rumbling. But Penina, she lived with an inflated, soul-shriveling sense of rightness when she compared herself to her rival, Hannah. But she was no happier for it. She was just as insecure and afraid. Why do you think she was such a jerk? Because Hannah had Elkanah's love, and she did not. This is the meritocracy. No one wins. Cannot earn your way into God's love and acceptance, which means you cannot achieve your way out of your shame. 
The scripture is clear. There is none righteous, not one. You cannot do life on your own. You cannot save yourself. Your power, your plans, your resources, your being better than other people, they, none of those things can secure for you the life that you want. Trying to be righteous on your own, trying to do life in your own strength, that's what's making you so miserable, friends. It's what's making us miserable. And here's the other thing you have to learn before we move on. The Lord is opposed to all of our self-salvation pro projects. It says in the text, now twice, now this is really hard. It's really hard, but it says it here. It says, look there in verses 5 and 6. It says, the Lord had closed her womb. God is committed to making you weak, to expose your limits and your lack so that you'll turn to him instead. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times for God to remove it and make him strong. And God said, no, I don't want you strong. Because if you become strong, you're going to become proud. And that's a big problem. And so the thorn remained with this lesson for the Apostle Paul and for us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Which is what leads us to the second consideration this morning, and that is that we really need a shift in the way we think about these things from seeing this barrenness and this image here uh, as an image of powerlessness, and actually it is an image of possibility, and therefore a cause for joy, which is why Isaiah 54 begins like this, sing, O barren one, he says. The verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, but there it starts like this, rejoice, Oh, barren one. And so if you're struggling, if you're weak, if you feel helpless, if you're overwhelmed, the right response is to sing and to rejoice. But that requires thinking about it in a completely different way, which in my mind is the lesson of this whole text. The prophet encourages us to rejoice because we are, in fact, most prolific in our powerlessness because salvation is by grace. That's the lesson. If salvation is by grace and not works, then a barren womb is not an obstacle, it is a receptacle. Which means your weakness is not a threat, it's actually an opportunity. Martin Luther said this, he said, God creates out of nothing, so God can't make anything of you until you're nothing. When you're weak, you're strong, because it's God's strength. We're saved by grace, by God's strength, not our own effort. And so actually what happens here is this theme of barrenness is woven throughout the Bible. At some of the biggest moments in the story that God is telling, at these chapters, new chapters of his power being made known in the salvation of his people. So in the story of Abraham, it's an important part of the Bible, right? Some pretty important stuff happens there with Abraham. But if you remember the story of Abraham begins with Sarah. And the one thing we're told about Sarah is she couldn't have children. The story of David Really important part of what God reveals in the Old Testament begins here with Hannah. The story of Jesus in the New Testament, the ultimate chapter of God's power in the saving of his people. If you remember in Luke chapter 1, it begins with a lady named Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. And what are we told about Elizabeth in Luke 1 verse 7? They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now that can't be coincidence. So much so, it is so obvious as you read the whole of the, of the Bible that when you read here, verse 2, Hannah had no children, you're supposed, it's conditioning you and me to think, oh boy, something really good's about to happen. Now we get to see what only God can do. 
because God does his best work in the face of human impossibility. See, the promise of the gospel is a couple things. It is that the barrenness that we have and that we experience in the end is actually, in God's way of working, the cause for more joy, not less. That the more unlikely a thing is, as God brings it to pass in his own strength, the more joy there will be when it comes. We've all experienced this in numerous places in our lives. I, I do have a story. I've told it before, but I haven't told it for a long time, and a lot of you are new. But my sister and her husband, who many of you know, they had a, a difficult time getting pregnant. Now, not Ashley and I, you need to know that. Uh, by the time we got news that uh, she was, that my sister was pregnant, we were already three kids in. And so it was around Mother's Day one year. And uh, so we decided to make a video with pictures of all of my kids. And then uh, the video kind of ended with a sonogram showing the new baby. And then it kind of black screened out and the video ended with the blank screen. All, you know, my dad and my grandparents and everybody gathered, are you ready for grandbaby number four, it said. And I'm not kidding you. This is not a joke. You're gonna laugh, but it's really not a joke. Everybody assumed that it was Ashley who was pregnant. So my dad was there, my grandparents were there, and uh, man, if you knew, my, my grandmothers used to sit on the front row together here, if you knew them, they were, they were something. So my, uh, my one grandmother's sitting right next to Ashley. Are you ready for grandchild number four? She turns to Ashley, she says, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's literally what she said. Not to be outdone by my other grandmother who scoffed, who scoffed. Of course. But then the, well, the room was underwhelmed. Let's just say that. <laughs> but then the video kept playing. It came back on, and it's Ashley and Leslie in the doctor's office, and Leslie's the one that's on the examining table. And you realize, oh, it's Leslie, not Ashley, who's pregnant. And then all of a sudden... There was screaming and cheering and hugging and celebrating. It's like, what the heck? Now, the funniest part was, is Ashley was actually pregnant at the time. <laughs> and we didn't know it yet. <laughs> but what the heck? Right? Ashley and I had three kids in five years. Uh, Leslie and Maddie had been waiting so, so long. And we had prayed and we cried together. And we didn't know if it would ever happen. And then it happened. And there was so much grace that it was the cause of so much joy. And I think that's the gospel promise here, that the barrenness that we experience will be in God's way of working at the end of all things, the cause for great and more joy, not less, but also the promise of the gospel is that the barren will actually prove to be more prolific than those who have children. That the weak will in the end accomplish more than the strong do because God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins is a greater victory with greater effect than Jesus merely sitting on the throne of the world subduing his enemies with power. You put the two together, though, you put that, the two things together, the suffering servant and the reigning king in heaven, well, here's what that means. 
If that's true, if the suffering servant who accomplished the ultimate victory is now the reigning king, well then your impossibilities are actually with God possible. Your, the deepest sadnesses might one day be the biggest joys. Your weakness is actually a potential strength because it's the grace of God that causes all of these things to be and his grace is sufficient. So here's the advice from Isaiah. If you're weak, if you don't have what it takes, don't be embarrassed by that. Sing, rejoice. Sing when you feel strong, but keep singing when you feel weak. Rejoice in all things. I say again, rejoice, Paul says, when it's going good. And also when it starts going bad, and even more when it's going bad, when you're weak. Rejoice because then you get to see what only God can do, and it will be a greater work than anything you could accomplish in your own strength. At the beginning of chapter 1, those verses there, Hannah was overwhelmed with sorrow. She was depressed. By the beginning of chapter 2, in those verses there, she's overwhelmed with joy. She was singing and rejoicing. Well, it's quite a change, isn't it? I mean, what happened? What in the world took place in whatever number of verses there are in between those two scenes and all of those in-between parts, the stuff we didn't read about? And I chose not to read it because I think it's a way of engaging our imagination. What do you think? What do you think happened? I mean, what would it take for you to have that kind of change happen to you from you, you know, for you to go from being overwhelmed with sorrow and embarrassment and grief to overwhelmed with joy? Well, I can tell you what happened with Hannah, and it's not what you think. You might think, well, she got what she wanted. I know the story. She got a new set of circumstances. I mean, she got the son that she so desperately needed. Of course she was singing, but that wasn't it. And this is where I wish you had a Bible, because if you could look in your Bible, you'd see there in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that there's a specific order of events that takes place that's very, very important. And I'll just relay them to you. But it says in verse 10 that Hannah became so desperate that she got up from dinner and she went to the house of the Lord and she began to pray before God and pour out her heart to the Lord in prayer. She took her helplessness and her powerlessness and her desires to the Lord and something significant began to happen in that time of prayer because the very next thing we're told as she finishes up that prayer time in verse 18 is that she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer sad. She went, she left, she went home full of joy already and then it says God remembered her and she became pregnant, verse 20. Now, which came first, her peace or her pregnancy? See, that's what you gotta see. It doesn't say she prayed and she got pregnant and whoo, then she had peace and she was full of joy. No, it says she prayed and she found peace and she got joy and then she got pregnant. So she had the joy she needed, the joy that made her sing in chapter two before she got the child because her joy was joy in the Lord himself. And that's the third thing. The third thing from our outline this morning, what's changed? Not her circumstances, I mean her theology. Her theology's changed. Hannah shifted her perspective from her circumstances to God's promise. And that's, that's what we have to see. There are feelings and there's faith a lot of times. And it's a battle. It's a real battle sometimes. And faith is letting your theology affect your feelings, not allowing your feelings to affect your theology. We live in a world where the truth is now in here. The truth is in here and out here are feelings and so the goal is to somehow figure out how to conform your circumstances to the truth inside. That's something uh, brand new that the world has never seen. For all of the rest of human history, 
feelings have been in here and the truth out there. So the goal was to conform your insides to the reality you come up against outside. Hannah's joy, I want you to see, was that second kind of joy. It was something that happened internally. It was, it was something that was taking place inside of her that triumphed over her circumstances and even over her feelings. And so she sang, beginning in verse 1. Do you see it? My heart exults in the Lord. There is none holy like God. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So something has massively shifted. Before her heart was rejoicing in a child and there was no child and so she had no joy. But then her joy was in God. In God alone. She says there's nothing like you God. That's what she's saying. There's no love like your love. There's no other joy like the joy that I found in you. There's nowhere else to go besides to you to find what my heart so desperately needs. And that, that really is just the, um, the scene in The Silver Chair, one of Lewis's Narnia books, where a young girl named Jill, who's from our world, stumbles into Narnia, and she's extremely thirsty. And she came upon a stream, but a lion, Aslan, sitting nearby and she's terrified and he invites her to come to the stream and drink but she's too afraid and so she kind of sheepishly asks him do you eat little girls she said to him and he said child I have swallowed up girls and boys women and men kings and emperors cities and realms and she says then I dare not come and drink oh there you go Siri's gonna tell us about it that's funny I dare not drink I dare not come and drink And the lion says, then you will die of thirst. And she says, oh dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. To which he says, child, there is no other stream. That was Hannah's song. I've looked everywhere else, God, and I realize there is no one else. There is nothing and no one that compares with you. She got the child she wanted, but Samuel was not her joy. God was. And that's why she immediately, if you know the story, gave him back to the Lord because of her greater joy in God. And the lesson for us is just this, that he who has God and nothing else has everything. And he who has everything else but not God has nothing. Hannah had God. And so even when she got the child she wanted, she already had everything. And that was the secret to her joy. It was why she could give him back, because Samuel's birth did not improve her joy. It added to it, but it didn't improve it, because her soul, we're told in her song, exulted in the Lord. And she sang, God alone, God alone is responsible for all of these things. God alone, but she also sang, grace alone. Grace alone. Look how she goes on to sing about God's grace in verses 4 through 8. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. And the barren is born seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. There's this, this flipping things around here, this inverting of the reality of life. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor and lifts up the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and so forth. What does all this language mean? It it means the world is pure meritocracy, meritocracy, yes, but the kingdom of heaven is sheer grace. And, And that anticipates a cosmic reversal where those who are winning, the mighty and the full and the fertile, are being displaced by the feeble and the forlorn and the barren and the poor and so forth, where the last are first and the first are last where those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted because grace 
favors the undeserving. It favors sinners and failures and losers because God is all and we are nothing. Now, human pride creates an inverted unreality which says, no, 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 I am all and God is nothing, resulting in self-reliance and boasting and contempt. But in the end, that is what God is going to correct, that false unreality. Because in the end, all the somethings will come to nothing. But the nothings, God's going to make something out of the nothings. This is eschatological language here. Look, verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, it says. So Hannah understood that what, what, what had happened to her was a small part of a much larger thing that God was doing to turn the world upside down, or you might say right side up. She anticipated the kingdom of God setting the stage for the rest of this book. So one commentator says it this way, the saving help Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in grand style. In other words, just like Hannah, every time God raises you up, every time he does something like this in your life to raise you up out of this despair, it's a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's a down payment on the full deliverance. It's a tiny salvation that images and mirrors the greater salvation that he is accomplishing in the world. Now look at the very end of, his, of her song, verse 10 where she locates how it is that God's going to do this, where, he's, where she says, and it, comes, it almost comes out of nowhere. It comes completely out of the blue. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And so we see there that this overturning of evil would be the work of the king. Now, this is a startling pr prophetic intuition on Hannah's part because Israel at this time had no king. Not yet. That's what's going to happen as the story goes on, of course. But the compiler of this material made this the theme. Even here, the king, the one through whom the work of God, the salvation of his people, the overturning of the power dynamics of greed and oppression would be accomplished in the world. There would be a king, Hannah's saying. There's a king that's coming. And he's the one that's going to make the world right. It'll be his work. It'll be his grace, not, not our effort that will make all of these things take place. Now, in 1 Samuel... That reference to the king ultimately meant David. The hope lay in David, but of course we know David didn't accomplish these things. As he was a man of, after God's own heart, but a flawed man nonetheless. And it was not his kingdom that was the kingdom that she's saying about here. For us, of course, David points to the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the true king, God's anointed, the Christ. And so what you see is that this verse here in chapter 2, verse 10, it foreshadows the gospel in a really powerful way, in a neat way. And what I mean by the gospel is this. We would be God. That is sin. We would be God. But salvation is God would be us. We would ascend and displace God from the throne of the universe. But God has descended and taken on flesh and blood. God, when he came, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God and putting himself where only God deserved to be. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man and putting himself where only man deserves to be. The world broke. The world broke when man tried to be God. It would be healed when God became man. Jesus Christ, 
hung on a cross, despised, forsaken by the Father, bearing the curse of our sins, the great misery of sin, the first becoming the last, the exalted King of heaven humbling himself into nothingness. That is the work of the true King, and it is that work that is reshaping the fabric of reality. Making nothing out of all the somethings and something out of all the nothings, and it's what Hannah is singing about. It's what Mary sang about, by the way, when she repeated Hannah's words at the announcement of the coming of her child, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. So what's the takeaway? We need to finish. What's the takeaway? Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. Think about that. God gives where he finds empty hands. But what does that mean, really? There's an old hymn that describes saving faith like this, where it says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. You're my friend, so I want to say this to you. The only thing that you need to become a Christian is nothing. Your good works don't make you a Christian. Your need does. Your need, your helplessness, your powerlessness is like a fast pass at Disney. They don't call it that anymore, do they? What do they call it now? The the genie pass? I don't even know. It's too expensive to go to Disney these days. I'm not doing that. It's not the happiest place on earth. Okay, you know. We haven't done that in a few years, but whatever. The genie pass, the fast pass, you go right to the front of the line, right? Your helplessness, your need is what gets you right to the front of the line. A person with saving faith comes to God with nothing because the righteousness of God is the righteousness we need. And the only way to get his righteousness is to admit that you have none of your own. And this becomes the whole life of faith. We don't just believe once at the very beginning. We believe over and over again, which means in the life of faith, I have such great news. You're going to love this part. If we believe over and over again, that means that we have to become nothing over and over again. To that end, let me just give you some advice. First, expect God to thwart your strength. Don't be mad at him when he does it. Don't get overwhelmed when he does it. He's doing a good thing to you. Expect him to thwart your strength. Second, anticipate God's best work to come from your weakest, most desperate parts. His best work to come from your weakest, most desperate moments. And third, Reconcile yourself to your helplessness and learn to pray. That is obvious, obviously an application of this text. Listen to you, Old House Begin. He says, to pray is nothing more than to let Jesus into our needs. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in the alleviation of our distress. To pray is nothing more than to open the door, giving, giving Jesus access to our distress and helplessness with all of his miracle-working power. I love this line. He says, it is not intended that our faith should help Jesus. He does not need any help. All he needs is access. And so listen to the hymn writer when, when he says this. Thy whole, this is the words of God beckoning to us from this hymn. Thy whole dependence on me fix, the Lord would say. Nor entertain a thought, thy worthless schemes with mine to mix, but venture to be naught. Fond self-direction is a shelf, thy strength, thy wisdom flee when thou art nothing in thyself. Then thou art close to me. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we confess that we indeed are nothing in ourself. Oh, we don't, we don't. We like to pretend like that's not true. And so we come up with all kinds of ways of 
denying that reality or at least projecting a different kind of reality to other people, but that is the truth, that we are nothing, that we have no righteousness by which to stand before you, that we have no strength of our own by which to make our life go. We are absolutely dependent upon your grace for every breath. And so would you do a work of grace in our hearts, even here in these last moments, to resign ourselves to our own limitation and need, to resign ourselves to our helplessness because it is, in fact, our best prayer. And so would you form that prayer in our lips, even as we celebrate this meal, again, showing us of our desperate need of your amazing grace to us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're hearing your faith is not not in the Lord Jesus Christ, lift out your hands, open hands, and say, oh, I have nothing, God, uh, but Christ, and turn to him in faith. If you're here and your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then reach out your hands to him, your empty hands. If you're powerless and weak and you need him to do a work for you this week, reach out your hands, your empty hands, and receive this word of benediction by which he sends us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You go in his peace.